Hello, everyone. A warm welcome back to Intersections, where our aspiration is to bring together different streams of human consciousness, different pursuits that you and I and we all engage in as a way to explore what happens when we dissolve those boundaries and we fuse different opposing ideas and thoughts and, and paths that people have gone on in order to discover the fuller potentiality in life, in humanity, in leadership. Today it is a really great honor for me to have in our midst someone who is a world changer. And let me just kind of put it in context for us. We're living at a time where so many of us are getting so deeply invested in really wanting to help transform, wanting to nudge the world towards a more equitable, a more just, a more humane, a more free place. Not just for you and me, but for everyone. And we're having these debates and we're having these social policy issues that are coming out and people are taking various positions on. But it's one thing to just kind of ideate and debate. And it's another thing to actually forge a very concrete vision a very complete vision and actually put it out there institutionally to make it materialize. And that is George, uh, Je Jeffrey Canada's story. Jeffrey Canada is someone who has actually taken some of those inner hungers that you and I and we all have and has found a way to give them beautiful outward expression. I want to take a just a minute to share a couple of things with you about Jeffrey's background, and then I will invite him on the show. So he got his education at Bowdoin and then at the Harvard School of Education. Jeffrey's got a bachelor's in psychology and sociology, putting him in attunement with human behavior and human nature. He started this organization that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, Harlem Children's Zone. Many of you are quite familiar with this exemplar as a organization that has done a lot of social transformation. He has been the president of it for 30 years. The New York Times calls it one of the most ambitious social policy experiments of our time. It is offering a best-in-class education in one of the more underprivileged communities in the New York area, and is also helping support some world-changing activism that that community is helping to make happen. Jeff has been not just a pioneering educator for which he has won a lot of acclaim, but he is also a thought leader that is drawn on by some of the leading lights in the public arena for his opinions and views of some of the challenges of the current times as well. His unyielding leadership and support and action for the underserved is something that has um, truly been transformative and has been recognized by some of the political and social leaders of our times as well. And um, as therefore a voice of how we can, in an inspired way, in a trusted way, help transform our communities, I cannot think of a person better than Jeff Canada to have in our midst today. All right, Jeff, uh, finally, we have you here with us. I am so grateful. I know we were attempting to make this happen uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you persisted. You stuck with it, and you're here with us today. It is a great joy to have you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited to be with you, and I'm already blown away by your uh, audience from all over the world who are tuning in to I think, engage with you uh, on a regular basis. So uh, uh, congratulations to you. That, that's impressive. Thank you. One of the things that has been my quest is to discover the universals. What is common to human quests and human nature around the world? You know, one of my role models, Gandhi, he once said, he said, the difference between what we do and what we are capable of doing would be enough to solve most of the world's problems. 
And Jeff, I mean, I study these ideas. You live these ideas. <laughs> you have shown that his quote is actually quite true. So um, let's talk about your story. Let's talk about that. In your early life, when you were growing up and or, you know, when you, when you went to college, what got you to converge that this was going to be your life's mission? You know, it's, it's interesting because I think you'll see that some of my life dovetails into what you are studying and what you are helping people understand. So you have to know this about me. My grandfather was a Baptist minister, had a church. He was the pastor of a church in Harlem. My grandmother was an ordained minister. My mother was, a, my wife is currently a minister. So that, keep that in perspective, uh, right? That yeah, yeah. Uh, these higher values have always been a part of my life, even as a young boy. So even as my father left us alone, uh, basically abandoned us, and, and uh, my mother was struggling with four boys, uh, I had this presence in my life of folks saying there was a higher purpose to some of this, but none of it made any sense to me. Poor boy in the Bronx, no money, no stuff. My grandmother's telling me the meek will inherit the earth. Uh, and I just was like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, and I kept asking, why do the good people seem to suffer? And the folks that we think are exploiting and taking advantage of people, they seem to be living a good life. Uh, and I tell folks, my grandmother fought with me to save my soul because she realized uh, I was thinking, I'm not sure about this spirituality thing. Doesn't seem to lead anywhere in life. Uh, while these other people who are very, uh, I think, uh, opportunistic and, and uh, seem to care less about the spiritual development, more about development, uh, seem to be dominating uh, the world uh, and also seemingly having the best life. So from the very beginning, these two forces I was grappling with. Uh, and I'll tell you what happened to me. My grandfather has a church in Harlem. This is in now the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Harlem is crumbling. Uh, the church, every Sunday, everybody's there saving the souls. And I walk out the church and I see other destruction. And I'm thinking Christianity is dead. It doesn't matter if, you, if you're saving a hundred people inside while thousands are dying all around you from drugs and alcohol, mental health issues. I, I don't get it. So when I went to Bowdoin, I was done with Christianity. I said, this is hypocritical. This is not the way Christians are supposed to act. I actually took a course in religion about the great religions in the world, right? It taught us about Islam and Judaism and Christianity. Those were the big three that we learned because I was on this search how does this connect, right? Something I've been raised with, with what I see in the world. Uh, the world seemed to be saying, yeah, you all believe in this. Meanwhile, we're devastating these poor people. Uh, and this seemed to be all over the world. And those two forces are the forces that drove me and still drive me even till this day. Reconciling this deep spiritual belief with the realities of what poor people are facing, not just in New York and in Harlem, but literally all over the world. Wow, that's such a powerful message that you've just communicated, because um, I think what you opened up for us here is the possibility that um, we start to unite some of these inner journeys that we're on, where we seek purity, we seek a connection with a higher power and all of that with the messiness of our outer life. And we see that to be the arena in which somehow that higher power has put us in, in order to do her work or his work, depending on whatever you want to think about the higher powers gender. But does that make sense? That did, you, did you completely walk away then from your you know, faith roots or did you actually see this as a way to re-express them 
perhaps differently from being in a church? So, so it's funny because I went on one of these journeys that I think people go on. I'm in college. I reject totally, right? All of the Christian beliefs. I'm thinking it's hypocritical. It's not real. This stuff is not happening. Even as the right struggle is going on and being led by Dr. King and some of the others. And you know, like most college kids, I'm reading up and saying, nah, here's a better way. And Christianity is the opium of the people. They had all of this stuff going on out there that I was deeply engaged with. And I'll tell you what happened to me. While I had a crisis of faith, uh, as a sophomore, and this was 1992, that one year my brother died, my, who was a year older than me. So there were four of us, now there's three. First of my oldest son, Jerry, was a twin. Uh, his twin died from crib death. Uh, and my grandmother, who I told you led a uh, sort of crusade to save my soul, died all within six months. And I was, I was at Bowdoin and I was devastated. But this is kind of what, so my grandmother was on her deathbed. She had cancer and she was so, uh, at that point, so sick, they just sent her home basically to die. And she was in a room and you could smell death literally in that room when you went in there. And she knew she was dying. We knew she was dying. I went in there and I said to her, Grandma, you're the, you're the nicest person I've ever met. You've never cursed. You don't drink. You don't smoke. You've been a Christian. You've done everything good. Why would God do this to you? This is a horrible death. Uh, you're in pain. You're suffering. Uh, why would God do this? And do you still believe? And she looked at me and she said, Jeff, I believe more than ever. And at that moment, faith became real to me. It's easy to have faith when everything's going great and you're making money and life is good and all your kids are. This idea of do you believe when everything seems to be saying, don't believe, it's not fair. I never forgot it. It recentered me back on this thing about faith and how it is connected to the struggles we go through in life, uh, which doesn't guarantee you anything, all right? To be, to be a good person doesn't guarantee you're not going to get cancer, your kids are not going to die. It doesn't guarantee you anything. It is a choice that you can make to guide your own life. And if you believe the value in that will guide you to a more perfect understanding of humanity, uh, then I think you choose it. And that's how I ended up where I am right now. Thank you so much for giving us a window into that really powerful story with your grandmother, that chapter in your life where you lost uh, so many loved ones. That must have been a hero's journey for your family and, and for you and for connecting it to, to your larger quest. Um, you talked there a little bit about sort of humanity. You have seen so much. You have dealt with so much. You've had to fight so much. What is your view of humanity? Well, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that question before. So this is what I believe. I believe right now we have, as human, we have the potential uh, to do something that I think we have struggled with on the face of this earth since uh, the beginning, which is for reasons of physical differences, deciding the worth of folks right? Whether it's male or female, whether it's uh, black or white, whether uh, it's those who wear, uh, you know, head covers versus those who don't. Isn't it stunning that even to this day, just that visual view uh, leads us to think we understand what's in people's souls, what's in people's hearts. I see a new movement in this country. Black Lives Matter is what is, uh, I think, sort of the encapsulation of that. But I think it's bigger than that. 
Uh, I think this movement is saying uh, that we need to stop using these visual cues to make decisions about the worth of human beings. You know, when I saw Black Lives Matter happening all over the world, people were, were sort of uh, marching around this. I thought, yeah, yeah, people are starting to get this. Uh, this is not uh, just about Black lives. It's about all of us who are considered different by some group with authority or power. Uh, and the reasons we have to say uh, to the larger world, don't judge us based on those characteristics. Uh, and it's hard because we've all been trained that way. We've all been trained to make snap judgments about who people are by how they look, uh, sometimes where they live, uh, sometimes what they wear. Uh, and I think we have an opportunity if we fight really hard to take that on honestly and have those discussions which are complicated and difficult. That's beautiful. A spiritual master that I've leaned on from time to time, he, he, he sometimes would say, he said, look, if you just pull the skin apart, We've got the same red blood, you know, flowing through all of us. And that's just a simple physical way of saying something much that you are saying in a much deeper way when you talk about the soul, the soul in each of us. Let me ask you to develop that thesis further for us, because I'd, I'd be curious. Okay, let's say that I have evolved my consciousness to the point where I see beyond these physical superficial differences. Now, what if I start seeing certain behaviors I don't like from certain people? Because those behaviors are antithetical to what I see as my values. Am I now in the right to judge? This is such a great question and one I care so much about for this reason. I've created a new institute called the William Julius Wilson Institute. And for people who don't know who William Julius Wilson is, he foremost African-American sociologist, professor at Harvard. Uh, he's sort of, uh, I think, emeritus right now, but he's written two books that changed my life. One is The Truly Disadvantaged, where he was talking about how what happens when you get concentrated poverty. What happens even in the black community when everyone who could afford to leave left uh, and you left folks who really had uh, the worst education, the worst uh, sort of job opportunity. So that's one book. And the other book was when, was when work disappears. And he talked about the role that work and employment has on all the social ills that we associate uh, with poverty. And both of those books said to me, so much of what we ascribe to a group can be understood through these other sort of larger forces, employment, migration, the inability of certain people to be able to access the same kinds of uh, resources uh, that allow folks to develop uh, and have their families develop. And, and I'll give you a classic. When, right before I went to college, uh, Senator Moynihan noticed a trend in the African-American community. Suddenly, he began to see fathers disappearing in the lives of children. And you had this phenomenon that was really devastating. And he began to write about what was happening in the Black community. And he said, something's going on in the Black community. Uh, you're suddenly having all of these single parent families. Men are leaving. Mothers are raising children on their own. And he began to try and understand this from the perspective of being Black in America. Today, the rates in white America of single mothers raising kids are higher than the ones that Moynihan saw in the black community back in the late 60s, early 70s. So what Moynihan saw was not a black problem, he saw an American problem that first occurred in the most vulnerable populations, which were the poorest of folks, the most discriminated folks, they were black. 
So you could have grown up thinking, what's wrong with all those black people? Why are they doing these things? When what you should have been saying is, how is this thing that I'm seeing positioned in a set of historical and economic forces that are causing behaviors which we think are not the most healthy for families? Uh, and that's where I think we go wrong. We look at a reality today and we draw conclusions. Oh, they're doing that because of this. When we haven't taken in pers into perspective uh, sort of the more historical kinds of forces that impact all of us. And I dare say to people, it's not until you're hungry and desperate that you'll find out uh, what you will or will not do to have your family survive. And uh, when you place people in those circumstances, to then judge them as if somehow they don't have the same morals, principles that we have uh, when we've denied them any opportunity to care for themselves and their families, to me, is a false way of looking at behavior. Uh, let me, that wealthy people break the law. We certainly recognize that. And we can say, well, maybe there's some moral challenges there that people who have nothing scramble and do whatever they can to survive is something that I think uh, is part of the human condition. And that we have to eliminate before judging those people uh, in my of you. That's very powerful. Two thoughts are getting sparked by what you said. One, you know, because part of part of our goal in these conversations is to give people insights and tools that they can use to uplift their own game. So in the spirit of that, I wanted to offer and I want to see your reaction to this. One tool that I found very helpful building on what you just said is the idea of running thought experiments. And so one thought experiment that I ran in my mind in recent months, as the unemployment rate has shot through the roof, was I asked myself, what if I was one of those unemployed and I didn't have enough wealth saved to allow me to really make ends meet at home? And not that I was hungry or my wife was hungry, but my child was hungry. Would I not feel that it is okay you know for me to go and from some more privileged people steal a little bit of bread which you know somehow is not making its way to me through whatever systemic sort of support i'm getting like would i be able to avoid that temptation wouldn't i feel justified with some kind of level of moral uprightness about feeding this kid who's right in front of me <laughs> and it was very hard for me to even seek to convince myself that I would not be open to some amount of petty theft. I will tell you, I've, I've run that thought experiment and I've seen it in real life. And I know I could not watch my kid go hungry if there was anything I could do about it. I just couldn't. That, if you've never experienced that helplessness, uh, that when it connects with hopelessness uh, and you're watching folks literally in front of your eyes, uh, deteriorate uh, and you as an adult haven't done everything humanly possible uh, to help that family. I think that uh, most of us would find uh, that we would cross boundaries that uh, we think are really permanent and clear and we find are more permeable uh, depending on your circumstances. Uh, and that's what I think William Julius Wilson was writing about, about work and employment and what happens to the family when suddenly your role as a provider is stripped away. Uh, yeah. And you see depression, and you see alcoholism, and you see substance abuse, and you see domestic violence, not because these folks are a different color, right? Because we found the same thing when those mines closed up in Appalachia. We found the same thing in the Midwest when suddenly those factories closed. All the same issues that we associate with inner cities 
happen in those same places because we separated folks from a way of not only getting sustenance, but of getting value of who you are. People forget, for those of us who are adults, we are something. I am an educator. Yeah. Take that away from me, and who am I? Uh, take away your, your role that you no longer can say, I am this person, I am a, a mechanic. Uh, and then who do we become and who cares? And in our country, I'm not saying about the rest of the world, in our country, you are judged by what you do. And when you have lost that status, you can feel depressed, uh, disconnected. You're more likely to stay home and not wanna go outside and associate with anyone. You will turn to drugs and alcohol because you have lost who you are as a person. Uh, and most of us who have never experienced that have no idea how devastating that is when in our country, again, I can't speak for the world, we have failed to separate who you really are from what you do. Right, that, that as a person, you are somebody that is uh, more than the job you perform and are paid for. So if you get laid off, if you are unemployed, uh, you are not any different as a human being and as a person and as value, but the world says you are. And most of us do not have the internal strength to fight that outward judgment of who we have now become once we've lost that status. Uh, so that, that I think is part of the battle we're all dealing with and what you're seeing in these unemployment numbers all over the world right now as folks who thought it would not happen to them. I'm middle class, it's not gonna, it happens to those other people. Suddenly you're on a food line, you're being judged by somebody about your ability to take care of your family and you don't know how you're gonna ever get your status back. That's gonna have a huge impact in in our country. Uh, and it's one of the big failings, I think, of capitalism is we've attached so much value to your ability to earn money that we have internalized that of where we get our value from instead of looking more internally to say we are valuable regardless to that job. So when things happen, we have some inner emotional reservoir of strength to resist the depression and the fear and the anxiety that occurs when these things happen. That's beautiful, Jeff. To build on that, another aspect of human the human condition that I have found this capitalism uh, model to be very blindsided on, and I want to test this with you because I see some of your work having touched upon this, is the role of homemaking and parenting and and kind of like nurturing you know the loved ones next to you you were talking to me prior to this conversation about the care and support you're giving your mother at this stage of her life journey and she's in her early 90s as you were sharing and um it's, it's always pained me especially as a business school professor that when we lay out all these statistics about the health of a nation the economic stats there tend to be focused on some of these visible measurable material kind of outputs of society but those intangibles which is how much love and care and quality time am i giving to my child if i have a sick uh, person at home am i being able to slow down some of my quest to like earn the next bonus check to really serve them and spend time with them and you know etc what do you think of that aspect of you know the human condition as well and and um, when you were starting to look into uplifting the um, community in, in Harlem and to address the issues of generational poverty, how did you end up thinking of going beyond, again, some of these very measurable outer kind of outcomes like school 
grades and going to college to recognize that the interventions you had to do lay not just in the school itself, but also in the community and in the families. So this is, uh, again, one of these uh, experiences. I watched the South Bronx crumble and I watched the social fabric crumble. Uh, and I could, I could trace some of what happened when uh, there was this sense that uh, you didn't need to lock your doors and you helped the old ladies upstairs with their groceries. And that was all part of what it meant to be young. Uh, and then once the community began to fall apart, there was so much suspicion. No one let anybody in their house. Everybody was suspicious, thinking you were going to rob them. One lock wasn't enough. You needed two locks and then three locks. And it became almost a self-perpetuating uh, set of realities. The more fearful people became, the more the, the, the crime was talked about, the more people thought they were living under siege. Uh, and I realized that you are not going to get a child to focus on algebra or trigonometry when they're literally worried about going home from school. Or when in school, if you seem like you wanna be an intellectual, kids wanna beat you up because they've been fed this false narrative of what it means to grow up in certain kinds of communities. Uh, that uh, there was a belief structure uh, surrounding our children in this country, which seems to be silly to say, but I lived through this, where the assumption was most of these kids did not have the intellect to actually go and take college level classes and work uh, and to become uh, middle-class uh, families. And they were directed into uh, you know, careers that people thought involved their hands because their brains weren't able to really uh, handle this kind of higher order thinking. That's just how I grew up as a kid. And I watched what happened to literally tens of thousands of kids around me. Uh, when the smartest adults you know tells you maybe you're not that smart, what eight-year-old, 11-year-old has the ability to withstand that? Uh, do you think that kid's going to go home and try really hard to understand the problem that frustrates him? No, he's going to say, I'm not that smart. My teacher knows I'm not that smart. And, you know, the world tells me, so I'll, you know, spend five minutes if I can't figure it out, and I'll just get the problem wrong. This has happened with certain people, certain groups of folks, certain areas. And, and I'm going to tell you this. Some of it's not accidental. Some of the history of the accomplishments of certain groups in our country, and I dare say around the world, have been suppressed. And I was giving this example to a group of African-Americans uh, because there was this movie, if people haven't seen it, they should see it called Hidden Figures. It's about the women uh, ended up helping astronauts actually get uh, into space. And, to, and they were so such good mathematicians, we called them computers. And I was thinking, if I, as a kid, growing up, understood that black women were so good at math that they were actually helping the astronauts when no one else could, it would have changed my view of my own intellect. It would have changed my view of black women's intellect and black girls' intellect. And we would have had hundreds of thousands of black girls who uh, would uh, now be doing well in math, probably having PhDs because this part of our history was hidden from us. So uh, that's the kind of thing that I think uh, intentionally happened. They never told us about those kinds of folks, and it would have changed our history if we would have known about them. Yeah, I love that film. It was so inspiring. And um, you're speaking now to um, my daughter's hunger. You know, she's 18. And for the last many years, she's observed this, how 
the achievements of certain people have just been systematically excluded from the history books. And it's it's kind of like she wants to get a PhD in history because one thing she wants to do is remedy the scholarship in history for exactly that reason. So um, it also reminds me, I saw a chart about the uh, way we have progressed in the world in terms of literacy from the early 1800s to now. And you see in the early 1800s, it was about one five, like 15% of the world was literate. And today it's the opposite. It's about 85% is literate. And I was just visualizing that if we were, let's say, part of the privileged few who had reading, writing skills back in the early 1800s, would we have guessed that the other 85% don't have it just because they weren't lucky and we were lucky? No, you know, most likely we would have said like, we we are special, we are blue blood, we are the aristocrats, you know, we, we have something in our genes and they don't. <laughs> of course, like, think about it. Reading and writing is so hard. You know, you have these abstract symbols and then you put them together and then you verbalize things and there are millions of words and ideas. How can humanity know that stuff, right? And you would have just written it off. And today we know that these 15% who still don't have literacy, it's just bad luck. They don't have access to the right resources at the right time because we know humanity is capable of so much more than what we felt it was, not at the level of certain special superstars or certain unique groups, but just all of humanity. And, and I was thinking, Jeff, 100, 200 years from now, when these next generations look back at us, what is the statistic today, which is only applicable to 15% in terms of attainment, which at that time will be at 85%, where today we are saying that these are just unique gifts and talents that some people have. And that time they'll say, what were you guys thinking? You just didn't provide the resources, right? And if you had to do that kind of thought experiment with me, what do you think would be two or three such kinds of achievements or qualities or attributes that everybody innately potentially has, but it's not been tapped into or nurtured, but you think maybe 200 years from now, we might see it. And I think that there are these uh, areas of human development that people just think you've got to be some kind of super genius to be able to uh, accomplish these kinds of things. And when I think about folks who, uh, math is to me one of these areas that uh, folks have for the longest time assumed that most folks cannot master this, right? And it's what kept women out, it's kept uh, most minorities out. Uh, so that's one area. And I think that we're seeing, hey, you know what? It's not that there's anything uh, necessarily different about the functioning of those brains. It's access, it's mentoring, it's support, and it's confidence. Uh, and if all of those things are missing, you have about zero chance, unless you're truly a genius, right? And some folks, even with all of that, they'll do well. But most human beings need that to be successful. I'll tell you the other areas you, you begin to look around and say, why are there so few women, people of color, minority, uh, finance? Uh, you go into finance and you begin to look around and suddenly you say, wait a second. And you know, when I talk to folks, they begin to explain to me the why. Well, yeah, let me tell you what. And all I say is that's what they told me about black people playing quarterback when I was in the 10th grade, right? It was all of this whole construct about why it couldn't happen and all, and all of it was nonsense, right? We simply didn't give certain people the kind of opportunities at an early enough age, right, for them to be able to master these set of skills. Uh, and uh, if we understand that lots of knowledge is based on learning the building blocks that precede it, and we deny people those building blocks when they're seven and 12 and 15, yeah, you're gonna see these differences uh, when you give them the test at 18 and say, oh yeah, this group really can't perform 
uh, as well as this other group. But that's all on us. I mean, I, the one thing that I think is probably one of the most important things we've done at the Harlem Children's Zone is in our schools, we run charter schools, but most of our kids go to additional public schools. In our own charter schools, we have these state tests, Common Core, very high. Uh, we've totally eliminated the achievement gap uh, between black kids and white kids uh, in our city and in our state. This gap has existed for since slavery, right? There's nothing so special about what we're doing. We're not some super geniuses that figured out what nobody else could and suddenly uh, what we decided was uh, that failure wasn't an option and we had to do whatever it takes with the name of Paul Tuxel, but we had to figure out what that is. And so it meant longer days of Saturdays working on the weekend. But yeah, we did that uh, just to prove that it could be done. And if we could do it, then why isn't everybody doing that? But that to me is just an example of all of the other places that we've allowed these differences that are racial or, or sexual to exist uh, when it comes to our performance. Uh, and, and let me tell you what, what I, I worry about. Technology right now, uh, people used to worry about technology with you know the lowest skilled arenas. But now we see technology is moving into the middle class and there are all kinds of things that people used to do, including writing newspaper articles and other things that these machines are getting smart enough to do. Uh, and I get back to my first issue about who we are as people. And if we don't develop a sense in young people of their own competence, uh, their own ability to learn, uh, and to use their brains in a cooperative way, and this labor market continues to change and shift, uh, I think we're going to see us sliding backwards instead of us being able to unleash the full potential of every human. Uh, I think we're going to begin to see limits placed again uh, as folks uh, decide you can or cannot get access uh, to certain kinds of rights and privileges based on a set of artificial boundaries and barriers that we present to certain folks because of this sense of scarcity. If there's not enough to go around, uh, who should have access? Uh, and that's always seemingly to be fair when it comes to like our capitalist system, talent rises to the top. It's never been fair in our country when it comes to certain groups. And it has justified a sense of entitlement, which I think has stopped certain groups from developing their best emotional and intellectual selves. And we need to tackle that before it becomes even more calcified, I think, in a set of beliefs and behaviors. Thank you, Jeff. Let's do this. Let's spend a few minutes on the how-to part of this, because that's what you've been doing. That's what you've dedicated 30-odd years of your career and your life in just kind of building out, at least in the microcosm of Harlem, an example that uh, can prove your, your theory of uh, how much more growth and transformation is possible under the right conditions. What was for you the biggest challenge in taking on this project? When you, when you look back over the years, what was the biggest thing that you had to really surmount? So here is, uh, this is, uh, I think, for your audience, and it may be slightly surprising. We knew what to do, right? Uh, it's like right now, we know what to do about coronavirus, right? It's like four things. It's not like you don't need a PhD to figure this out, right? Everybody's, and why? Or it's like 30% of the folks won't do it, right? This is, this is part of this science getting confused uh, with what I think is human beliefs and politics and other uh, issues that often have to do with the other, right? That you're the other, so no matter what you do, 
I'm going to do the opposite because I consider you to be the other. And I think we see that in, uh, in things that's killing us. So you imagine if we are prepared to adhere to those kind of beliefs, even when they kill us, and we see every day it's killing us, and still we don't change, to do nothing. It doesn't cost us anything. It's not like you have to spend $50,000. It's not like you have to go out. And four basic, simple things we won't do because we are prepared to say the other side is wrong. This, I think, is the biggest barrier that we face uh, and that I faced in trying to set up the Harlem Children's Zone in Harlem. And I'll tell you what that barrier was. Uh, people did not think these children were worth the investment to fix the problem. That uh, when it came time to say, well, this is what it would cost, people told me they couldn't afford it. And they said, we couldn't afford that. And I went around the country arguing uh, for 15 years that we are totally prepared to invest in these communities when it comes to locking these folks up. And the $3,000 a year I was going to spend to save these kids and put them on a path to employment where they paid taxes and participated in our society, folks thought it was too expensive. But in New York State, it cost $60,000 to lock one of these kids up for a year. No one was complaining about that cost. That gets back to this mask thing, right? You're not complaining that incarceration rates are going off the chart. It's $60,000 a year, and we're totally prepared to pay that. Someone comes up and says, hey, you know what? I can solve this problem for $3,000. And they say, no, we can't afford to do that. Uh, that, to me, is what has stopped. It stopped us. And you know what? The reason we were able to do it was because a couple of business folks, my partner in this work, Stan Druckenmiller, decided these poor black kids from Harlem were worth investing in, and he gave us the money to do it. And he said, yeah, we should be doing this. This is part of who we should be. Uh, by the way, he's a big-time capitalist, so this is nothing. This is not saying this is one group is any worse than another group. He just thought America should stand for everybody having equal opportunity. So your talent should take you as far as possible. And he recognized these kids didn't have it. I'm still fighting that battle today. These communities all over the country, they're worth the investment for us to spend the money while they are children to give them an opportunity to live a better life. And I think that when folks talk about the cost, to me, we've seen what we're prepared to spend on this country. Uh, when we think there's a problem. Trillions, trillions, a drop of a hat, just like that. Like one week, we're like, oh, we need another trillion? We need another... <laughs> we've been taking advantage of these particular folks for hundreds of years, and we've always said we can't afford to fix the problem. Uh, and that is not true. It never was true. It's not true today. This is simply uh, where the science is separated from an emotional and a set of beliefs which I think interferes with our ability to live our best selves and be our best selves in this country. That's beautiful, That's so powerful. It reminds me, during the Civil War, there was a moment where Lincoln, as president, put out a proclamation where he announced a day of uh, prayer and fasting. And uh, for him, it was an invitation to you know, invite the country to kind of go within and really connect with their faith and ask themselves, why is it that we are being asked to live through this difficult period? What are the lessons we need to learn what is it that we haven't done that we are now being invited to shift our thinking and do? And, um, you know, I, I wrote a small piece on that because the anniversary of that uh, proclamation from Lincoln just fell a few weeks back. And uh, as that anniversary was coming up, I just said, like, maybe if Lincoln was around, he might have done the same thing, you know, invited us to kind of engage in one day of like some prayer and fasting, just go within and ask ourselves, why coronavirus? Why this sudden, like, you know, stoppage of everything? And what is the shift that we need to make and how we are operating as society 
to not go back to the old way of doing things, but some better, newer, improved, higher consciousness. And you've just brought to us clarity and a couple of glimpses of what that might need to be and might need to, yeah, the kind of transformation and growth we might need to go through. Uh, Jeff, once you have like um, the resources, let's say, once you have the country committed to investing in uh, bringing up some of these uh, more underprivileged uh, communities and neighborhoods, what is the next big challenge? Because I, I like, for example, I've seen people to be often a scarce resource. So sometimes we have money, but we don't have people. What I've seen you do at Harlem Children's Zone, which I've had the privilege of interacting with some of your leadership there, is you have some incredible people that over the years you seem to have handpicked Right, right from George Caldoun, who had such a you know joy in, in getting to know who was one of your college mates, right from that time. So you started doing the very careful picking of the right talent. Then, who was your chief operating officer, and then now you have got Kwame as the chief executive officer there. You had Anne, who just retired in that role, and you know having had the privilege of interacting with all these people, they're incredibly talented and they have a great heart. And you know we're just talking about just a couple of the legions of people that you over time hired. Building an institution is not easy around the vision. What was your approach towards selecting the right people? I think you hit to one of the secret sources of the Harlem Children's Home, talent, right? And everyone out there who is involved in a business, runs a business, engaged, knows talent. There's no, there's no substituting for talent, right? Because talent allows you to overcome some of the sort of inertia that we all face in trying to get something done and when you're doing something that no one has ever done, right? Going into a community, trying to rebuild that community, take it from a poor community, turn it into a middle-class community, uh, you need folks who have faith. And this, you know, I'm, I'm coming full circle back to this. Folks had faith that it was possible even when everybody told us it was not. Even when they say no one has done it before. And let me tell you why you can't do it. You'll never be able to raise enough money to get this done. I had a small group of men and women who fundamentally believed that we, and it wasn't like thousands of us, this was a handful, five or six, believed that we, if we put all of our energy and focus and belief in this, that we actually could do it. Uh, so, uh, and one of the things that I am hoping, uh, and from conversations like this, I'm hoping that more really talented, smart college uh, students will say, hey, you know what, uh, maybe uh, their status in going out and serving the poor. Maybe I don't need to uh, go work at the Fortune 500 company uh, for folks to think I'm a big deal and that, you know, I'm really so smart. Maybe I can show how smart I am if I can go out and solve one of these social problems that exist, that the people have struggled with. Because part of the challenge that we faced in this country is that we have so denigrated what it means to work in this sector, right? There's a saying, you know, people who do, do, people who can do, teach, right? That's been around forever. It is one of the most insulting things because I don't know any successful person who can't point to a teacher that changed their lives and made a difference. And I'm certainly no different than any of the rest of them. So folks who feel like I'm smart, I'm talented, why would I go do that, right? Let me do something really important where I can make a difference. Uh, that's something that I am hoping a number of us in the social sector, uh, by lifting up this work and saying uh, the set of skills and talents it takes to really do that uh, is worthwhile. 
And when I was young and doing this work, you had to take a vow of poverty, right? I mean, you really did. Uh, now, lots of educators do, but there's lots of other folks in the social sector who can actually earn a decent living where you can, you know, send your kids to school or send them to college. Uh, so it's not like what it was. Uh, and I think that we've got to go out and, and say, put a signal in the world that these folks who decide that they're going to spend their lives trying to make a difference are some of the most important people uh, that you can sort of support. In the Scandinavian countries, they value teachers in a totally different way than they're valued here uh, in the United States and other places. Uh, and I think you see the quality of the talent they bring into that area when the society values what you do and says, hey, this stuff is really important. And I think a lot of parents are figuring out how important teachers are since they've been home with their kids trying to figure out how to do this job. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, so I think that this talent issue is real, but I think that this generation that is looking and saying, we need to live by a different set of principles uh, might see this work as worthy of the best and the brightest that the world has to offer. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful about that, Jeff, because when I compare when I was in business school to when now today's generation is in business school that I am more in the role of teaching them, uh, I do notice a, a heightened sense of hunger to want to be relevant in some positive way to the world, not just to blindly go out and just kind of market another brand that can just make a lot of money. You know, and yes, you know, sensibilities have to change and evolve. But I think your message is incredibly important. And it is one that is being listened to. And I, I would uh, love to find ways for you to be a continued source of inspiration, including to our community here at Columbia Business School, uh, making those choices about how much money do I really need to earn and what compromises am I comfortable and willing to strike in terms of a few like ways to simplify my material needs and hungers in order to kind of like do the good work, you know, the work that nurtures the spirit and the soul. It reminds me of another Gandhi quote, you know, Gandhi once said, he said, the world has enough resources to meet humanity's needs, but not humanity's greeds. And um, I, I realize we're getting close to the end of time. My last question to you is um, at this stage of your life, with these decades of uh, tremendous innovation and leadership and pioneering social transformation that you have um, not just made happen in Harlem, but really provided a role model, something that makes um, leaders across the nation take notice, including our former president, Barack Obama, his wife and first lady, Michelle Obama, who calls you one of uh, her heroes. Are you mostly looking back at this stage of your life or are you mostly looking ahead? And when you look ahead at the decades that um, are going to ensue, you you passed on that that torch, right, to Anne and now to Kwame, or at least this baby that you created, which is now like a, a very responsible adult, continuing to mature and do its work. But what are you most looking forward to? What's your big dream in the decades ahead? So uh, you and I were talking earlier about our fundamental beliefs in, in uh, life and death. And, and I just feel connected. I, I feel connected to Gandhi. I feel connected to Dr. King. I feel connected to Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and the folks who fought for, you know, suffrage. That That's uh, part of the human condition. If, if you think it's just about you and, and it's all about your life experience, you sometimes lose contact with what has happened before uh, you were here. And uh, as I think about the next stage of my life, I say to myself, 
are we where we need to be? And the answer is no, we're not where we need to be. Uh, can I make some difference in some person's life or some group of people? And uh, is there something I can still contribute? I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, there's a group of people who are close enough around me when that answer is no. And they say, Jeff, you know what? Uh, you've reached sort of your time and, and you know, maybe you don't really have anything else. I think they'll tell me it happens. But for right now, this time we're in, which in my whole life, I'm 68 years old. Uh, this is the most unknown, right? I've lived through a lot of stuff. This is unknowable. How this is going to be in the next month, the next six months, the next year, uh, how many more folks will die and get sick around the world. And then, I mean, this is a time uh, when I worry about the souls of us all. Are we prepared, uh, even when threatened, even when fearful, to still believe that we have to give more, to contribute more, to help more. Uh, and I think some of us have to answer that call. And I wanna be amongst that group. I wanna try and help. I wanna try and save more kids. I wanna try and help families get through this crisis and figure out how we rebuild, not just our country, but how do we rebuild the world and pick up. I think we were making progress. We got a lot more to go, but pick up where we left off. I don't wanna see us go. 20 years back because this pandemic has so shaken our belief in the goodness of human beings and the purpose of life. Uh, so uh, there's more, I wanna do more, uh, and I'm excited to be able uh, to uh, continue to do this work. Ah, that, that's so beautiful, that's so beautiful. You know, it, it reminds me of an observation that I have made over the years where I shifted at one point from the kind of like socialized wisdom I had that a good life was about doing some great work, getting to earn some laurels and then retiring. And once you retire, you kind of like, I don't know, play this thing they call golf and, you know, rest on your laurels and whatever. And then I read the story of, you know, Michelangelo, right, in Italy, the Renaissance sculptor, and how he just kept doing and doing and doing his craft because he loved it. And there are all these like unfinished works of sculpture that still exist when he was in his 90s and he outlived like, I don't know what it was, like 14 popes or something, you know, to get, get to that point. But he just kept doing his work. And I felt like, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to find what I really love and I want to do it till my dying breath. And then I went through a third shift, Jeff, and I wonder how you relate to this. And this is when I studied some of these people that you mentioned, Dr. King, Mahatma Gandhi, and Abraham Lincoln. I noticed, for example, with all three of them, they got assassinated. So they got clipped fairly kind of at an early stage in the, in the wings. Gandhi was the most mature that way in his age. All three of them actually had some intuition that they were going to be taken away from this world imminently. Like it was like, you know, that famous speech from Dr. King, you know, just, yep. you know, just the night before. Yep. And uh, Gandhi, same thing. If you ever visited India, ha have you ever been to India? No, I've not. I've not ever been to India. No. I would be thrilled and honored to uh, arrange and host and, you know, kind of like have you there. And uh, there's a museum where he got assassinated. And uh, there is this uh, frame by frame account of his last few hours. And just like Martin Luther King had that moment, in the case of Gandhi, he had somebody who had come to visit him and his assistant asked him, sir, you know, he's wanting to meet you. And Gandhi said, tell him that I will meet him after my prayer service if I come back. Mm. And he goes out for the prayer service and that's where he gets assassinated. And then, and then with Lincoln, one of his uh, guards outside the White House said, it's curious for me because he would always, when he would leave to go into the city, he would, he would say, he would say good night, you know, to me. But this one night, he didn't say good night when he went to see that Shakespeare play. He said goodbye. And um, 
the sense I get from that is that a there's so much that we don't know yet, <laughs> you know, about about human consciousness and what it can tune into. And the second sense I get is from a couple of quotations from these folks and and then these stories is that maybe it's not about praying that I can keep doing great work for a long, long, long period of time and then I die. But the only prayer we have is that as long as this higher power needs me to do something, keep me here. And when you're done with whatever you needed from me, then just kind of snuff out my candle and you know I'm gone. Like, what's the point of being here? <laughs> and that's what I see in you, right? I see in you as somebody who's so deeply committed to using every moment, every moment of your life, infusing it with beautiful meaning. Thank you so much, Jeff, for what. Oh, and, and anyway, any reactions or thoughts to what, what I just shared? Well, I, I often do uh, commencement speeches for colleges, uh, and I use part of Dr. King's uh, last speech uh, that he gave. Uh, right before he was assassinated, when he more or less predicted his own assassination. Uh, and uh, he talked about getting to the promised land. And he said, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get there. That mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And he talks about not fearing any man. And uh, you, every time I see that, I just think the power that which some people live their lives knowing, and, and Dr. King knew that there were all kinds of plots against him, the FBI and folks were trying to undermine him. Uh, and yet, till the very end, he was doing the tough thing. Uh, every time I think about that, it makes my life seem simple, easy, right? It's like, you know, who am I to complain? Look what these great people sacrificed. And at the moment of their sacrifice, they had no idea the impact it would have on the entire world. And you can just see that connection between how King studied Gandhi, and Gandhi didn't know he was going to have this impact on all these African-Americans. So this is the story of our lives and the interconnection of all of us. Uh, and I think that we all have to say uh, we can do more. We can do better because there are people who have given the ultimate sacrifice. And thank God that's not been us. But we certainly can sacrifice more than we're sacrificing right now. Uh, so with that, I say to everybody listening, do more. We can all do more. Do it until it hurts. And when it hurts, realize that pain is not as deep as the pain that others have prepared this road for us uh, so that we could take advantage of the freedoms that we have today because of their sacrifices. That's so beautiful, Jeff. Um, as we bid farewell to you and wish you well on your path forward, you know, a quote comes to my mind uh, from a Sufi poet, uh, Rumi. And uh, I'll share the first part of the quote, which is about each of us being a drop in the ocean. And I think one thing that you've done is really help connect us to the ocean, connect us to the ocean, dissolve us in the ocean, make us see the inextricable relationship we have with the ocean of humanity around us and that we owe something to because of where it's brought us, like you just said, but also where we can take it next. But then there's the other part of the quote. And that is what I have felt from you today. And so his whole quote is, you are not a drop in the ocean. You are the whole ocean in a drop. Wow. And wow. I see that in you, Jeff. You are wow. you are the whole ocean in a drop. Thank you for um, opening that whole ocean up wow. to us. So beautiful today. Thank you. Thank you for this time to be together. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Very, very grateful. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. I really encourage you to visit Harlem Children's Zone's website. Find out more about Jeff Canada's journey and his life because it will be truly inspiring for you to watch more of those videos, hear more of his stories. And um, I think you're just going to get a lot of personal inspiration and guidance from it. Very, very grateful, Jeff. Thank you.
All the Thank best you. to you and yeah, look forward to being in touch. <laughs>